Welcome to Scientist. On today's podcast, we interview Oliver Bracco, a researcher at Cornell University. We need more people coming into the field. We need new ideas and young people, bright minds that come into the field and push the field forward. Because uh, the good thing is there's also so much to, to, to research on. Oliver's research focuses on blood flow reductions in neurodegenerative diseases and works profusely on the topic of Alzheimer's disease. We hope you enjoy listening to the podcast. Thank you. Okay, so hello, how are you? Can you begin by introducing yourself? Yeah, my name is Oliver. I'm currently a research associate at Cornell University. And um, we'll... I'm running a small group here as a biomedical engineering in Ithaca, New York. Okay, so how did you get to the position you're at working with Cornell University? Yeah, uh, basically when I was finishing my PhD back in Zurich in Switzerland at the ETH, I went traveling for a year because I didn't know what I wanted to do and I wasn't sure whether I wanted to continue doing research. But during the time, I realized I like it too much, and I was looking into new places and decided I want to work on um, microscopy more and using um, in vivo imaging, which means imaging the mice, in that case, alive. So we, so we were looking for labs, and I decided then to go into um, Cornell University just because it was a good package of um, a topic-wise have been relatively close of what I was doing before, but they also had a big advantage of uh, really modern technology. So we are an engineering lab, so we're creating our microscopes as well ourselves, which is really has been new for me. Oh, brilliant. So how have you found that experience? Yeah, challenging. And <laughs> I think even <laughs> until now, it's really challenging for me with a biology background and trying to understand um, the physics behind the microscopes um, is challenging and even by now since it's um, still tough for me but you can learn to make your way around just by error and try a little bit and make mm-hmm. things work and I think it's it's engineering so you just need to try to make these things work so it was really good I think it pushed me a lot a lot forward. Okay so um, why did you use crowdsource citizen uh, science approach to analyzing imaging data? Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about this method? Yeah absolutely I think that that really the idea really came out for us by a time where we were analyzing um, the phenomenon we discovered which is reduced why there's reduced blood flow in Alzheimer's disease and we always had problem to analyze this data and the, the, the kind of the bottleneck is basically um, this counting the number of blocked capillaries. Mm. So you must see that overall there are thousands to 10,000 of capillaries in in a certain region that we can image. So with our microscopes we can get quite large regions but there are only a small percentage of those uh, blocked capillaries. And the problem was that how to do that. We were spending, I don't know, years in trying to find a way to use machine learning algorithms to train on our image and use um, artificial intelligence to try to make it work but somehow somehow the codes weren't never efficient enough to give us the results we were looking for but we of course still looking into that that would be still the best way and then back in i think 2016 
Um, we, we met a, a person as Pedro Micolici. He's a director of the Human Computation Institute and he has done his PhD in Mars and on, on crowdsourcing. Mm -hmm. So we came up with the idea, maybe we could also use um, his knowledge and our data basically to, to create the citizen science game. I think from there it was quite a ride because I think it really launched really well. So the game is basically based on um, two famous um, projects that has been running before. One is called Stardust from Stanford University, where they really had the problem that they needed people to identify the small dust particles in a huge volume that they collected really from out of space. That was really successful. And the other one is called iWire, where they try to map every neuron in the eye. And that has been also really um, successful project. So we launched then our project. So people get small pieces of stacks, basically, and it's relatively simple in a sense for the players because is we are really trained with our eyes to see movement and what the people do they really decide as simple as is a black spot moving in a blood vessel or is it not moving yeah and if it's not moving it's stalled if it's moving it's it's flowing and this has been um, quite good so far and i think by now we are over twenty-seven thousand players um, for the whole game and i think they did a tremendous job as well in just um advertising the game to local Alzheimer clubs, to citizen science meetings. Mm -hmm. So their part has been really a lot of this outreach. Of course, we're also contributing to that, uh, but mostly we're coming from the data side and try to do the statistics because it sounds easy, they count, but we need to prove that they can do it as good as we do. And that has been also a challenge until today because in vivo imaging data has just a lot of background noise. And yeah. that's a little bit challenging. And I mean, along the way for me, it has been quite, I quite enjoyed it. And I learned a lot that we really have as scientists sometimes to watch our language because these people, they really play because they usually have a family member that have been died or has Alzheimer's disease or another form of dementia. And I mean, we as researchers often state or overstate our results. And I think we really have to, I learned my lesson to have to be much more cautious because um, things are really slow in science and the mm -hmm. players has also, they had to understand it. And so did we, that we can not say basically this is a path to a new drug or this is the path um, it is a path there's a possibility that is a path to a new drug but it's slow and it's at least 10 years from now yeah. so this, is, this has been really good I think for both sides so you mentioned your research, how you do Alzheimer's research. How did you get into Alzheimer's research? Yeah, I got into Alzheimer's research quite late in my career and it was almost by accident. So I came to the US um, to really use the microscopes here and I, had, I was working on stroke before. So I'm a stroke researcher and I was working on blood flow and stroke. So stroke and blood flow always have to go hand in hand, of course. And um, when I came to the lab with my research proposal or my aims I wanted to work on, mm. um, I just got into this Alzheimer project and they just identified those blocked capillaries and it was just really exciting. So, so we did experiments and as it is, sometimes the experiments turned out to be re really working well and it was fun. So I jumped on the project and expanded those projects until now and I, I just never went back to the stroke so far. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm planning to do that definitely going back to the future because um, Alzheimer's and stroke has a really high correlation themselves. So meaning people that had a stroke early in life have also really high probability to get Alzheimer's later in life. Yeah. 
absolutely absolutely um can you explain your career so far yeah i mean i definitely have a pretty uncommon career and mm. um, mostly um, being a first generation kid going to university mm. and all coming from a working class family. So it was expected for me in a small village, I have to say that as well, because it, it's a little bit part of it as well. So my parents were basically expecting me to start a job soon after school. And um, in fact, that is, was exactly what I did. So um, in Germany, you have um, three passes in schools and one leads you to university and the other basically leads you to a job. And the advantages then they're shorter than the one that leads you to university. So I took that shorter one, started to uh, get trained as a pastry chef. So I was a pastry chef for three years. And, but already during the time, I realized that I need to go back to school and trying to get somehow find a way to get to the university. And that is what I did. So I went back to school, did my high school degree. And then I went to university studying biology and at the university in Tübingen. That was a really nice nice place to study it has a really basic biology program so it was included all the field work but also all the molecular work so i quickly started to work in a lab doing plant genetics at the time because it was a great opportunity for me to um, learn english because unfortunately um, in those lower school levels the english basically hasn't been trained at all so i yeah. really had to start from scratch and that was challenging so it was a really international lab they paid me so I didn't have to work um, next to the studying. So it was really a great ob opportunity and it was really fun. Um, from there, I moved to the Salk Institute in San Diego to do my master's um, on stem cells in the brain. So looking into stem cells and learning and memory, doing um, short-term memory behavior in mice. And then I decided to go translational with the stroke. So this all goes hand in hand because the stroke and learning and memory has been also always somehow my topic and then I went to the US starting um, here my research on Alzheimer's disease. Oh, interesting, interesting because I used to live in Germany funny enough and I remember when I lived in Germany um, people were telling me that you have the gymnasium and Realschule and stuff like that. Did you go to Realschule or the G gymnasium? Neither in fact so there's a third really? one which is the Hauptschule. Wow! Um, that's kind of if you want the lowest education of the three it sounds kind of harsh but it's also just true yeah <laughs> I just have to to face this so I went there yeah it was a tough way and I think um, unfortunately the German system for one to choose one of these passes on the little bit better side then there are sometimes some ways to also um, move in between mm. so um but it's not easy and it needs to be financed and all those things, but, but um, it was possible. And I'm thankful for the people who helped me along that way because it's not a straightforward path. Interesting, that's so great how you were able to move up the kind of social ladder in that way, especially considering your background. It's going back to your research. What do you think is the significance of the uh, results of the study so far that you've conducted? Yeah, so it has two sides. So I would first of say that our basic initial question was why there's blood flow reduction associated with Alzheimer's disease. And this has been known from clinicians since many years, but nobody knows um, or nobody really knows what is the mechanism behind it. And the reason for it is a little bit, it's, it's 
relatively easy since many years to measure blood flow in patients, but you're not getting the cellular resolution. So you can measure flow as a movement, but you can no, not look into individual small vessels. And, and this technology has been, um, in fact, developed here at Cornell University. Mm -hmm. One way to do it now since since quite some years where you can image the blood vessels um, at a cellular resolution. However, of course, you cannot do that in a patient because it's invasively. You need to get somehow access to the brain as a matter of fact, um, but you can do it in mice. So this is where we started. So our initial question was why there's blood flow reduction. And we went to look into all the different kinds of vessels. There are basically three major vessels of one. Mm vessel takes it into the brain, one is feeding the brain and the other one takes it out of the brain. And those ones, the uh, ones who are feeding the brain, those smallest vessels called capillaries. And there's what we found the phenomenon, which I said is the stalled blocked vessels. And those are just increased in Alzheimer's disease compared to um, normal healthy mice. And when we looked into that, um, we realized those are white blood cells. So the white blood cells get stuck in those capillaries. And one need to note that the capillary diameter is in fact smaller as the cell itself. So when mm -hmm. one cell is in there, there's no blood flow. And if you think about it, the whole blood vessels are networks. So if you block something on top, of course, it has an influence on the following vessels. And that was the case. And then we realized when we when we were testing for um, drugs that interfere with that um, blockage, we can restore blood flow again in those mice. So what's happening with this antibody, we inject an antibody, those blockages go away and the blood flow is increasing again. And now the nice thing with that was that on top of that, the blood flow restoration was also recovery in their cognitive impairment. So in tests for short-term memory, those mice learned better again. And mm -hmm. that was really um, fascinating. However, on the other side is um, we only know that from mice so far. So yeah. we don't know whether humans have those capillary stalls. So there are some indications that from other diseases that could be the case, but we cannot test it yet. We have a couple of ideas, but again, the limiting factors at the moment, the technology is just not possible to non-invasively image um, at that cellular resolution. Brilliant, brilliant. So what were the challenges of undertaking your study? Yeah, for me, it was the most challenging was getting the microscopes working. I mean, these are home-built <laughs> microscopes and yeah. it's like, I wish I could send you a picture, but if you see it's the first time, it just looks um, pretty um, discouraging. But of course, you need to, you, you can learn it so you can make it work. And so that was for me the most challenge to really get um, this all working. And on the side is, um, it's the image analysis. So counting those stores. So we had the citizen science game, but of course later than this publication has been coming out. So what we did at that time, it's always two people were counting the same stack and just to give a stack, meaning an imaging stack, that's a volume of vessels. Mm. And I mean, if you think about it, it's a few thousand in such a volume, it takes several hours to identify those stores and you of course will always miss some so yeah. at that time we had two people counting and let's say and then we merged the data just to make just to be sure because at that time we weren't that sure whether with such a small effect and it wasn't a reliable count so what we then did was um yeah we had two people counting and merged the data together and just to give you a time idea what stallcatcher basically did if we have one mouse Mm -hmm. one-time image and of course we can image the mouse several times because 
and we are not killing the mice the mouse yeah. is still alive and we can, can continue imaging which is really nice and such one stack is at least one person per day so you can imagine one is two persons is two days if you would really straight only look into a vasculature and i can tell you that's pretty boring to do that you cannot do that for 10 hours so it took us months and years to analyze this data and now the game is catching up and now now they're really fast and we can really do more experiments because you must imagine for every small step we do we always have the comparison is there a change in capillary store so yeah. that means always months and months to to get the results um, away and that was um it's still a problem and it has been always a problem um because it's, you cannot analyze blood flow in a in a post-mortem mice because there's just no blood flow anymore yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Do you have any advice for young researchers looking to get into Alzheimer's research? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, as it is for me, it's quite a new field, and it's it's just really exciting. So you always have, of course, we all know the numbers that the number of patients increasing with Alzheimer's disease. I just checked the numbers. It's something I think it's in. 44 millions worldwide, mostly, of course, in Western countries now, mm -hmm. but of course, the developing countries catching up as well. And it's really interesting why that's the case. Um, but I mean, with the projection into the future, it's just will increase tremendously. And it's, yeah. and, and it's one of the few major diseases who still has an increase in the mortality rates as well. Of course, it's a huge burden for the families and for the caregivers, and we will need more of them. And at least here or in Germany, they're really poorly paid, and it's a really yeah. tough job for them. So that's really challenging. It will increase, and there will no will be no way around. I don't want to be the pessimistic one, but I doubt that we will have a cure really fast, and maybe we will find some drug. But if you think about the last drug that has been approved for Alzheimer's diseases over 15 years ago. And um, it helps for some symptoms, but just simply doesn't do much. Mm -hmm. So, however, on the other side, <laughs> for researchers, it also means, I mean, we need more people coming into the field. We need new ideas, um, young people, bright minds that come yeah. into the field and push the field forward. Because uh, the good thing is there's also so much to, to, to research on we really know little. We have a huge amount of data, but to kind of compile it to a big picture of how the disease really works, we are just not there yet. Bits and pieces and details and a lot of great research has been done, a lot of great research is going on, but to really put it together, the what is Alzheimer's disease um, just doesn't exist yet as much. There has been a lot of failed clinical trials for drugs on Alzheimer's disease, and those drugs targeting and one of the hallmarks of the disease. So these are the deposits in the brain. So if you look in patients with Alzheimer's disease, they have this called amyloid beta plaques. So these are aggregates of proteins that mm. are in the brain, and those antibodies take those out. And in fact, they really do their job. However, that just didn't improve um, the outcome of the patients, which has can have mm. many reasons. It doesn't mean it does not work. There could be also timing. When do you start to treat? Because we cannot um, identify easy patients with Alzheimer's disease early in the progression. And so we need biomarkers, we need new drugs, we need a better understanding. And I think these are all fascinating topics to do research on. And being a researcher is just fun. 
Um, it is really rewarding. Of course, it can be as frustrating as it can be rewarding at the same time, but there's a lot of freedom in doing research. So I really love doing research. Yeah, so what do you think can be done to try and get more drugs around, more drug trials and things like that? I mean, on the conservative side, I would say we need to do first uh, way more basic research. I mean, we know even a lot of the Alzheimer brain, but on the normal aging brain, we have much less data already. Hmm. Getting funding for aging is much more challenging than getting funding for a disease. So it's sometimes difficult to really make the, the comparisons of the normal aging brain to the Alzheimer brain. But of course, for some aspects, this can be done and it has been done with some really fascinating work moving forwards. I mean, there are a couple of ongoing drug trials for the moment. And some of them, I think, have a great potential, um, especially on the biomarker side. So can we identify Alzheimer's disease earlier as we could have been done it um, several years ago, because you must imagine once, once you're already at a late stage of the disease and you have many, many of those deposit plaques, you have cognitive impairment already at a late stage, it's just almost impossible to think that you find a drug that still can do something. But if you yeah. imagine you would have done it maybe 15 years before, and um, that would probably help. So I think there's, there's a lot of room to still um, push drugs forward, even with the current stage of drugs that, that are ongoing. I mean, for us, since we don't have approved for humans, I really don't want to talk about drugs for restoring blood flow. But of course, that would be an interesting part because um, those patients have reduced blood flow and the reduced blood flow is also correlated in patients to cognitive impairment. Yeah. So I actually believe that if you could help with that, there would be a there would be some, some improvement in patients with Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, maybe also with other dementias because basically all the dementias are correlated with, re with reduced blood flow, which is really interesting. So maybe this is a contributing factor. And if you maybe could treat that symptom, that would help um, or slow the progression. And I think that would be nice. And on the other hand, there are many fascinating drug trials going on. A lot of them are on A-beta, but there's also a second hallmark, which is called um, tau. These are fibrils that are in neurons, so in the cells, which are important for, for, for um, brain function. And um, they are ongoing trials, but just haven't come any results in. You must imagine that such a trial is five to 10 years, at least hmm. once you have the basic research done, so to go through all the phases. Then there are some on anti-inflammation. So Alzheimer's disease has also a huge component of being an inflammatory disease. There are also drug trials um, going on on that, but there just haven't been really neither on the one side, no positive results, or we don't know the results yet from, from the patients. And a lot of has to do with the recruitment of patients. Um, and that comes back to the biomarker side. All I'm trying to say, if, if you could choose your patients better, then you probably would see maybe effects for some of the drugs. So the biomarker is a big field at the, at the moment. And you can do a lot of, um, a lot of um, interesting imaging in, in the patients. You can see those plaques um, in patients now. And I think as more data we get from, from MRI imaging, um, as sooner we will have probably some good biomarkers and probably such trials can be designed much better as it has been, been possible before. 
we need young and good people coming to the Alzheimer field. How do you think we can get more young people into the field of Alzheimer's? I think it's actually not difficult. I think um, at least here in the US, they have increased the funding for Alzheimer's disease significantly. And of course, that brings also just naturally more people and more labs into the field. And I think that's really good because um, sometimes the field is a can be a little bit stark with the same experiments and the same ideas that are going on. If now people are coming from outside, they're bringing in ideas from different fields, they're doing different experiments and looking into different aspects. So I think that's already ongoing and the brain is just fascinating and it's kind of a big frontier in research and we don't understand learning and memory really well. We don't understand um, cognitive impairment really well mm -hmm. and I think these are just so fascinating topics that I have no doubt that the young people will come in and doing research on Alzheimer's disease and doing research and doing a PhD and then continuing. Um, it's fun. It's rewarding and it gives you a lot of freedom that I feel like you don't have in other jobs. I cannot compare to too many jobs. It's only the ones who I have done. Mm. But um, you can be creative. You can follow research directions that you would like to do. And I think that's, that's just amazing. Do you feel there's opportunities to be creative in science? Because you said that you can be creative. It would definitely be creative in your research. To a certain degree, of course, there's a limit. I mean, you need to get funding <laughs> to, yes. to do the research you want to do. So um, that can be limiting. And that's on the one side, okay. On the other side, it's sometimes disappointing. The system has many problems, but I mean, the system has a lot of problems as academia is. It can be really frustrating. There's a huge bottleneck then for young people to moving on to academic careers. But overall, the job situation is good. I mean, if you have your PhD in, let's say, a biomedical engineering degree, you have mm -hmm. um, great opportunities um, to continue. However, to stay in academia is a problem. Um, it can be only a few, and that's naturally the case. And that can be really frustrating. And you can see that, in fact. I mean, um, I would say as, as high the rewards and you see people being happy in academia, you definitely find the same amount of more of highly frustrated people. Mm. That's something we, we talk about a lot on scientists because um, a university study showed that 50% of um, PhD students actually suffer from depression. Um, do you have any thoughts around why you think that is? And also I would be very, very interested if you could talk about the structural disparities in the education system that you mentioned. I mean, not taking people, I mean, just on, on the, I mean, I mean, doing the PhD, you start to have a really diverse group of people coming together. Mm -hmm. And there's a really high pressure on every stage. And it, it starts at university, definitely here in the US already. If you do your college degree, you already start to feel the pressure of extra activities you need to do to get a better CV, to get into a good program. Mm. Once you made it into the program, I mean, um, it's usually good, but the pressure is really high and the pressure is in the end getting publications. Mm. And this is basically the, unfortunately, the final reward and we can deny it and we can say we can do a lot of other activities, which I also think are really important, like 
And I think universities start to doing much better in that direction. It's looking into alternative careers, giving more classes on how to get into industry, how the industry is working, or how science and policy classes. So the universities are definitely recognizing that has been a gap for many years. But still, finally, it's somehow connected to your research um, success. And that can um, fail on many levels. So it just cannot work. The hypothesis hasn't been true. Um, it just doesn't work out. You, you don't do the right experiments. And I mean, this frustration is so high mm. um, that a lot of people cannot face it. And then it's, um, there's a hierarchy and in universities that can be um, pretty strong. So it's mm. top to bottom. We often like to claim that this is not the case, but it's definitely the case. So especially during your PhD, you feel the pressure from your PIs or the principal yeah. investigator a lot. And you need to perform, you need to work a lot. It's in fact also true to success in the ac academic career, you need to work a lot. I'm not saying that's enough. That's for sure not enough. You also need a good proportion of luck. Your experiments need to work. You need to meet the right people. It's often a club of people that, um, that kind of, you're either in or out to a certain yeah. degree that just exist. I mean, we cannot deny it. And um, that of course is a lot of trouble. And I mean, if I look into the PhD students throughout my career and also currently that I can see here, I mean, the, the rate of depression is just really high. It's now much more open, so which I think is good. People talking much more about it. Also, PIs are recognizing it. Um, the problem is for a lot of these PIs is just they continue the way they have been treated during their PhD. And it's a system that can be toxic and continuing. And it's still like, until the time you really make it independently, you sometimes forget how it has been at the beginning because yeah. it's such a long past. It's often 15 years, 20 years maybe, until you really get into a secure position yourself. And until you reach it, you, you feel the pressure as well to succeed because the ultimate goal is getting your tenure and it just takes such a long time. So you have yourself such a high pressure to perform well. Your lab needs to perform well. The people need to perform well. You need to publish to get your tenure, to get your grants. So there's a whole system of pressure. Mm, and absolutely. I don't have a good solution how to take it out. One could say the easiest would be with more money, which probably is difficult because there will be always a pressure on money. But definitely the university is recognizing it and um, trying to be better in supporting people and trying to early on um, see the signs of depression. Also the PIs and people get much more trained in recognizing this. So I think there are some things that are going good, but it's really slow and it's not fast enough. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking part on the interview. It's been a fascinating, fascinating topic speaking to you. I've been Mariam. Yeah, I'm Oliver. Really happy to be here. Yes, we're very, very happy to have you. Thank you once again. You have been listening to Scientist. Check out our podcast here on Anchor FM and Spotify, as well as other platforms every Wednesday. And for more information, check out scientist.net stroke podcast. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the podcast.